in that same way that an offshore wind farm is inherently something that you have to tackle in a collaborative way, I think this kind of energy revolution, this transition we're in, is a bit like that because we, we need to tackle these challenges with a sense of purpose and actually urgency, but with that common outcome in mind. If we want the clean energy, then perhaps the least impactful way we can do it, and certainly with the greenhouse gas emissions, is to do it with renewables. Let's make those choices and get organised and get the system set up so that we can deliver it. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to the latest episode of Energy Unplugged. I'm Richard Howard, the Research Director at Aurora Energy Research. In this episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Duncan Clark, who's the head of UK and something of an offshore wind guru at Orsted. Welcome, Duncan, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. So um, me and Duncan have actually known each other for quite some time um, since we... Uh, almost eight years ago, I think, Duncan, we worked together at the Crown Estate. I think and it's nine. I think it's I think it's just a little bit over nine years. That's nine that's years. when I when I left the Crown Estate to come to what was Dong Energy at the time. Yeah, and that's what I thought it would be fun to sort of start at start at that point, really, which is I guess uh, to understand. Um, how you've got to where you are today as being the head of the, the arguably the, by far the biggest offshore wind uh, company, Orsted. So from the Crown Estate onwards, what's what's been the journey for you? Well, I had the good luck to come from a commercial role at the Crown Estate into a project development manager role for Hornsey One, as it was in the pre-consent stage. And I did that for a year or so in Dong Energy and then moved in to be a project director for Westermost Rough, which was just getting to uh, an FID at the time. And I then took that project through its construction and, and into operations. And that was the start of a, of a real role as a program director in execution, taking on Hornsey One through execution and also Hornsey 2 until until recently. So yeah. Hornsey 1 came to a conclusion and completed and that um, that really opened up the opportunity for me to take on this role, which has been equally fun. These are massive projects that you're talking about, Hornsey and, and Westernmost Rough. What, what's the total size of those in, in megawatts or, or billions of pounds, just to give people a sense of scale? Yeah, well, Westernmost Rough was about a billion euros of capital expenditure. It was 35 turbines of a totally new platform, the uh, what's now Siemens Gamesa six megawatt um, platform, and that was the first commercial production run of them. And uh, Hornsey One is a real scale play and is 1.2 gigawatts, 174 turbines of seven megawatts each and further from shore than we've ever done before and it's the highest capacity plant it's 
uh, roughly four billion pounds of capital expenditure. And at the time we embarked on it, really felt like a man on the moon project it was described as. Um, And of course, one of the great strengths of offshore wind, I think, is that much of what you do gets standardized in a manageable unit, whether that's a turbine and its foundation or the cable solutions or the um, offshore substation, you know, you can actually break it down and get it right at that smaller level. And then these really big projects become become manageable. Yeah, I was going to ask a, a, a bit about that. So what, in a way, Allstead has become such a specialist in this area and that some of these projects that you've worked on were, in a way, the, the pioneer projects where this moved from being, I guess if, if we think about early offshore wind as being a process of sticking what were designed as onshore wind turbines onto a platform in the sea. Uh, these are now these are now b- machines that are bespoke for the offshore wind setting, and and it seemed to me an awful lot more thought went into how to deploy at scale and, and get the cost down. But what what to you are kind of the real ingredients in that story to behind Orsted's success in really pushing that through and scaling up? Yeah, what you say is exactly right. And I think we learned a lot as an industry, and this is up and down those supply chains and with the sponsoring uh, companies, the developers, and also with the funding parties. We learned a lot by doing it on smaller scale projects, round one style projects, round two styles projects as well, gradually growing it. And that enabled the, the core product, the turbine, to iterate and it's grown it's grown massively so the the very fir- first projects in the UK were maybe a 2 megawatt turbine and we're now planning projects uh, i think the the most recent ones from allocation round 3 are at 13 megawatts per turbine it's it's transformed it you don't do that without uh, trying it out learning by doing and feeding the lessons back into the supply chain, into design, into manufacturing, into installation. It's often overlooked a bit, actually, the installation, because one of the changes that we saw at Westermost Rough was this stepwise getting the tools right for offshore installation. If you're handling a blade that's 75 meters long in a naturally windy environment, you'd better really think about how you do it. So a proper automated setup with the right grippers and handling equipment, that becomes an important part of your success. So you can imagine, you know, maturing offshore wind to scale up and get the cost of energy down is much more than just a desktop design exercise for size. It's about bringing all the multiple different types of company types of professional expertise that is involved in actually delivering the whole wind farm and getting them all to challenge and say okay how could we do this better you know how can we install a blade in slightly wider range of wind conditions you know how can we handle a blade that's getting bigger and bigger as the design evolves and still handle it safely yeah and tackling those questions takes engineering skill it takes um, collaboration across companies, across supply chains, and it takes a bit of time. And that's the journey that I 
see has happened in offshore wind across all elements of that chain. So many tiers of supply, all the different companies involved in installation and, and the developers and funders as well. Yeah. And I mean, all of the things you're saying, yeah, so, so true. And it's, it seems to me that this is part and parcel of, of, of just getting it done, moving to those big turbines and actually physically being able to install them, but has also been a big part of the cost reduction story that we've seen in offshore wind. I guess if we cast our minds again back to, to where um, we worked together, Duncan, back at the Crown Estate eight or nine years ago, we would talk. We worked together on that, that offshore wind cost reduction study that at the time was saying, can we get the cost down to this magical number of £100 a megawatt hour? And we, <laughs> we, from 150, which is where we were, but we now see the projects at, at 40. Uh, at what point in your journey did you did the penny drop and you suddenly realise actually a hundred that's that's um, be- behind us? We're now talking about much lower numbers. Well, when did that realisation come at Orsted? Not nine years ago, I can say, and I and I think even at um, I think in my mind actually the Hornsey one to Hornsey two step was the absolutely pivotal one. So Hornsey one, we were still moonshotting really doing something so much bigger so much so many more turbines so so much further from shore a really challenging transmission link to build um and and in that mode you're still pioneering but when we came to do hornsey 2 and to and to get that to fid that's a project that's currently in offshore construction as we speak but the the cost of Hornsey 2, it's very much a sister project. It's uh, adjacent offshore, so it's a similarly long transmission. It's similarly working to construct and operate in a far from shore environment. It's roughly 10% bigger. Um, but the cost was, and, and you know, as reflected in the CFD strike price, was you know, just over a third of the strike price. So for me, that's that's the moment. It was the moment where we could actually say, not only can we see this on paper as an exercise in cost reduction, but we've justified the finance, reached an investment decision, and we will, uh, we and our supply chains will get good business delivering this project. And it's almost a third of the cost per unit energy. I think that was the moment for me. And of course, you have the benefit because it's a sister project of being able to say, well, we've we've learned many of the lessons which m- might prove to be painful. That helps. But actually, what we've also seen is in other countries and in other projects in the UK, those costs have been been repeated. Yes. So we've, we've, we saw some really competitive bids in the Netherlands for, for Borsalo 1 and 2, actually, which is just been completed offshore the construction has just been completed but again that was a breakthrough auction slightly different from the uk because those are bid without the developer building the transmission link as well so slightly different but again it was very competitive as in terms of price per unit energy and that really showed that it showed that it's real yeah i one other aspect i'm interested in is is the sort of transition i mean we talk about offshore wind as uh, uh, sorry orsted as the offshore wind giant now within the industry but it has not always been thus when you joined the organization it was called DOM which stood for Danish oil and natural gas 
Um, and that was the main play was in the oil and oil and gas space. And it's now we, it's it undertaken a remarkable transition in a short space of time. Can you can you sort of describe a, a little bit how that's felt as, as being part of that process? Yes. And, and and you're right. You know, Dong Energy, as was, had a rather coal fired power station fleet. Yes, it, yes, it had some really interesting uh promising interest in wind particularly offshore wind but it also had these oil and gas assets and uh, coal-fired power stations and and in and district heating as well associated with some of the some of the power stations and it's been a real transformation and of course in in the company's journey there were some pivotal moments and i think one of them was a proposed coal-fired power station where a lot of development effort was brought to try and bring this project to to fruition uh, in Germany and it it didn't happen and I think the company asked itself some hard questions after that you know what 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 is it we've been doing uh, what is this um, tide of uh, objection and what what is it we're not seeing and really realized the way things were going and also there's another point which is looked at what were the capabilities that the company had and which of those capabilities provided a winning platform which 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 of them would enable the company to be really good at something and really successful and i think offshore wind at that moment stood out um, as as an area that was promising, growing, but where the company had a very strong starting point, having been involved in the earliest offshore wind farms, 1991, now now decommissioned, but having had that continuity of involvement, and was at the time, you know, building presence not just in. Uh, Denmark and the UK, but in other countries like Germany, and. And the promise was there. And actually the company had some real um, capable, visionary people at, at the group CEO level when Henrik Paulson joined, uh, a, a, a very thorough and rigorous focus and working to get that strategic alignment in the company and, and create a powerful vision behind which everybody could align and focus. And when I joined the company, the investment funds for the offshore wind pipeline came basically from the cash thrown off by the oil and gas assets. And, and of course, that is the history where we are today, having been through an IPO, having divested those oil and gas asset, assets, having uh, converted the coal-fired stations or shut them down. We're now a, if you like, pure play renewables company market leader in offshore wind with growing and strong uh, onshore renewable pipelines as well, uh, particularly in the US, but, but also elsewhere. And really being part of this fantastic global growth of an enthusiasm for offshore wind with a leading position in the US and a leading position in, in Taiwan, you know, as our platform for, for growth in those Asia Pacific markets. Yeah, I suppose and on a, in a similar way, I wonder whether there's lessons here 
for the likes of companies like BP and Shell that have come from this heritage of oil and gas and still still have the, the oil and gas assets, but have aspirations to be um, to be reducing their emissions and, and getting into to clean electricity. In the case of Shell, aiming to be the largest electricity company um, in the world by the 2030s. So, are there parts of this that they can they can learn from that? I suppose a, a related point. I find it fascinating that Allstead's market capitalization is now roughly the same as BP's. I think recently it tipped over to be slightly higher than BP's. Yes. It sort of seems to be indicative of, of where the two companies have got to. But are there lessons that, that BP and Shell can take from this? There definitely are. And I think that strategic focus is really important. It it has knock-on effects for everything and the acceptance by all your stakeholders, whether that's shareholders, communities in which you work, you know, all, all of those have to come along because you change your profile as you evolve the company and, and what it does. I think there's also a, a real need to understand the risk and return profile of what you're getting into one of Dong Energy's early winning strategies was to make rather large framework agreement commitments to some of our suppliers. And that enabled them to have that line of sight to the sales volume. It meant yeah. that, that Dong Energy was taking on the volume risk and the project development risk, but those supply partners could play their part in investing for the next generation and taking the products forward. So there's a there's a kind of an appetite to take that kind of, of course, that was just the example back then, and it will be different in the future. But I think that the general example is the need to see what is missing and be prepared to take on um, some brave, is that the right word? I think it might be some some commitments that 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 take you down that path and um, you know the risk return profile of a, of a major investment in an offshore wind park is a, is a bit different from exploring and producing for oil and gas um, but there are models that work and you have to find your way through that I think in terms of motivating our people you know we've got a lot of our people who are genuinely inspired by the vision of making a world that runs entirely on green energy. They feel that purpose. It's a motivation. There's a real enthusiasm for it. It helps in all of the, that common vision really helps our, the people who are part of the company and also the people who are our collaborators in delivering projects. So that, that shared set, sense of purpose and positivity i think is something open to all of those other companies as well it's just yeah. a question of of getting it right to access it and i think i think a vision which speaks to what is it you're doing for um your stakeholders and for the world if you like yeah. um i think that's really powerful and and it's bigger and better and more than a vision which is just about the company getting bigger do, do you know what i mean yeah 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 it's about it changing i, it, I think what's interesting about that so both, both bp and shell continuing these analogies have made these big commitments to say that they are going to they are going to shift towards greener energy 
and their shareholders are very much behind that as well. In fact, they arguably are the ones who who pushed in that direction the hardest. I suppose it's that challenge, as you say, about bringing the people, the staff along as well. And I think there have actually been some noticeable departures in the shell case for um it seemed to be reported that individuals were were struggling to get get their head around that vision or or not seeing the change come fast enough in a way i suppose if you're if you're in if you're in a company that's in oil and gas that's trying to transform itself for some of those individuals it's whether is it better for them to push that through where they are and and work within that industry or or kind of shift towards the green pioneers and who are already doing it that's that must be a difficult personal decision, but does seem to have been a big part of Allstead's success story has been to to get people behind a, a really strong vision. I guess it, thinking, kind of looking forward, then where do you think we'll go next on the on the journey for and um, for Allstead? What what are your plans as the head of UK? And um, what what do you think Allstead will look like in in five or ten years' time? You know, we're a market leader here in terms of capacity i'd lo- i'd love to keep us there the uk is a great market to be in ambitious growth an established framework established institutions and processes whether that be for consenting or grid or financing in, in, in fundraising all of that is a good place to be um i i'd love it if you know we've I think we'll have invested by the end of next year 13 billion in the UK in UK energy assets and I'd love for us to double that and more in the decade to come and to keep ourselves at the forefront of the of the sector here as as this sector really stays in a world leading position if I look at the wider company we've got exciting growth all over the world now and um really one of the big challenges we've got is to be successful and continue to be successful in delivering that uh, all all around the world. That introduces lots of new challenges. You know, what are the things that you try and do in the same way from a global delivery mindset? And what are the things which are inherently local and which you base, you know, in country and are best done that way? And of course, this is a globalization journey that companies have done throughout cycles forever if you like and uh, you know there are companies that make a success of it and others that that struggle and I and I think it's a success factor for Austin in the in the coming decade is is to make that journey successfully. Yeah and so the way you describe that it sounds like it's it's kind of more of the same go global get really good well you're already really good at doing offshore wind but do it in more places is that, I just wonder from a kind of risk perspective, you, you feel that sounds like it's a strategy of putting all your eggs in one basket, but just um, making a big bet on something that we, we do think will be a big part of the future. Is, is that the right way to characterize it? Or is, is there also a strategy to kind of diversify into other adjacent areas as well? There it is. There is more than offshore wind, but when something is as exciting as offshore wind is now, and when you've got a leading position in it, you know, you it shouldn't be neglected. And and it's you know, some of that success is based on a really good delivery engine for executing projects through that construction phase. But but also remember that often offshore wind projects have got a 10-year journey. Maybe it's five in really good case, but sometimes it's 
it's 20, you know, in, in the development stage before it gets to construction. And, and that's much more local. You know, that is much more about the regime you're operating in, the country, the, the geology and geography and, and the local, you know, everything from weather to politics to land ownership. Um, and so that, that's much more local and more difficult to standardize that, I would say. Um, the other thing we're seeing is that the breakthrough that renewables have had and offshore wind as part of that leads us to think about energy very differently, not just differently for how we get our electricity, for how much of our energy needs we meet through electricity. And that that opens up opportunities. We're really, um, we're really trying to get up that learning curve with the potential for hydrogen. You know, we, hydrogen as a, as a carrier, as a way of decarbonizing some of the most difficult parts of, of our society and energy use, whether that be some of the heavier industry or heavier transport, no, we can see a role for hydrogen and quite possibly there's an even bigger role for hydrogen by the time we get to 2050, also in things like heating. So, you know, time will tell on that, but we're absolutely sure there'll be a, a decent sized role for hydrogen. And so we are in the process of developing pioneering projects in several different countries, you know, exploring that, being there at the front end, getting that early experience and and learning by doing because i think with all of these innovations it's more than just a new design it's more than just a new piece of kit it's the whole solution and delivering the solution and then learning from how it how it works and feeding that back into the cycle that's where the value gets gets made and and that's where the real opportunities to grow and succeed come that's what we've learned i think from from offshore wind and other technologies yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you brought, brought us on to the topic of hydrogen. It's something I was going to ask you about. I suppose, given your presence in offshore wind, I wonder, do you perceive hydrogen as something that um, complements that and it, it sort of provides um, you provided offtake for the power, in a way, through the electrolyzers to produce hydrogen, potentially produce, it gives you different revenue streams, it could, might improve the economics of your offshore wind plant. Is it that way? Or... Do you see hydrogen as an investment opportunity kind of in its own right? Do you know, it's both. And it's both. And uh, the clean, low-cost electricity produced from offshore wind in really high volumes is what unlocks the potential of hydrogen and the cost of that hydrogen. So therefore, the cost of us reaching net zero is dependent on the progress in offshore wind. So it's a future which is very tightly linked in with what we're doing in offshore wind. That's one thing. But also when we look at the stage that the hydrogen technologies are at today and the things, the journey it's got to go on, we see lots of potential for succeeding in the same way that we have with offshore wind. You know, that's a journey we do understand and it's a combined thing about everything from technology and project execution and project development and working with regulators those are things we do already so that that's an opportunity for us in its own right i would say and and then perhaps overarching it it's 
totally in keeping with our vision. Now, a world that runs entirely on green energy is going to need a broad range of solutions. Offshore wind is a really useful part of it, and so will hydrogen be. Yeah, yeah. What one other sort of emerging technology which is um, potentially close to your area as well is is the floating wind, um, and we see in recent announcements from the UK government a commitment for one gigawatt of of floating wind by 2030. Is this, are you getting into the floating technologies at, at Orsted as well or, or, or a bit more cautious about that? Yeah, no, we really, absolutely, we can see that potential for floating. It will open up some really high volumes, new areas, actually many, many countries where it's almost the only option. So even though right now, if you look at the pipeline and the projects we're actually in the process of constructing right now they're fixed bottom and there's a there's a lot of fixed bottom as we call it um potential there the floating will come it's it's a bit less mature than fixed bottom is at the moment it's got to go through some maturing of the technology solutions and the, and with that will come the cost of energy profile and d- definitely will will be involved with that uh, at the right time although right now the projects we're constructing are a fixed bottom Excellent. at I'm various glad, different times yeah. i'm glad you said the phrase fixed bottom so many times in that uh, in those last few <laughs> sentences duncan um, <laughs> we, we should have said the word floaters as well um with the floating <laughs> um all, i'm sure you have a lot of fun with that at allstead um, and just one one final thought before we wrap up then um obviously we've had Quite a few announcements um, from the UK government um, in recent weeks. Um, I don't expect you to have waded through, um, I think, what is, I'm told, 1,200 pages worth of the six carbon budget um, and the energy white paper. But if we focus on the offshore wind part of it specifically, the target for 40, gig, uh, 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, is that something that you think is achievable? I do. I think it's achievable and that's not to say it's not challenging um, but as an industry and with our stakeholders in government and, and other organisations we have a fertile discussion ongoing on the things that are at the forefront of that challenge whether they are to do with the planning system and the necessary decisions and balances that have to be struck between, for example, uses of the seabed and, you know, impacts from from making decisions to commit to this clean energy through to connecting to the grid in an efficient way, through to, you know, evolving the, the contract for differences as the, as the mechanism which gives our funders line of sight. Um, and so, yeah, those are examples. We've also got challenges, you know, for totally understandable reasons, the capability of offshore wind to create economic growth and regeneration in coastal communities. And th- that industrial opportunity is a, is a big part of the proposition as well. So all of these things are challenges to be, to be tackled, and they're all ones that need to be tackled in a collaborative way. And I, that's another characteristic, I think, of an offshore wind farm. It's funny, when you, when you build one, and you've got dozens and dozens of different contractors, thousands of people, each perhaps responsible for a specific scope. But those scopes all have to stitch together. And there's no point in, you know, trying to lay an array cable if you haven't put your foundation in. And there's no point in trying to commission your wind turbine if you haven't connected up your array cable. 
And of course, you can't install your turbine until you've got the, fa the foundation installed. And in that same way that uh, an offshore wind farm is inherently something that you have to tackle in a collaborative way, I think this kind of energy revolution, this transition we're in, is a bit like that because we, we need to tackle these challenges with a sense of purpose and actually urgency, but with that common outcome in mind. You know, if we want the clean energy, then perhaps the least impactful way we can do it, and certainly with the greenhouse gas emissions, is to do it with, with renewables. And so let's make those choices and get organized and get the system set up so that we can deliver it. And actually, it not only is that good for the national carbon footprint and the planet, but it's also really a source of, you know, I'm really proud, actually, that we've got an industry that's got this leading position, that we've got organizations like the committee on climate change that's a really top quality piece of work that i think we can be proud of and if if we get everything right in the frameworks around this then it's then it it puts us in a great position competitively for everything from industrial investment through to investment in the energy assets through to export opportunities and and it's a real leadership position couldn't agree more duncan um I think on, we'll end on that very uh, positive and optimistic note then of, of what you've been um, setting out as, as your vision. Doug, it's been fascinating to have you on the podcast. So thanks a lot for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Richard Howard, Aurora's Head of Research, talking to Duncan Clark, Head of UK at Orsted. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.